Good evening. I want to start with a warning, a wealth warning. Young actors, I'm told, are advised never to appear on stage with animals or children because they can make things go haywire for actors. And I was given advice a long time ago that in teaching Bible, there are three things that I should avoid, three subjects, money, marriage, and how to manage children. And that is because James tells us that those who teach Bible will be judged more strictly. So who am I to tell other people about how to manage their children, their marriage, or their money? And so I don't know how this happened, but here I am tonight to speak about wealth and poverty. But what we're doing is listening to, as Tim reminded us, the speaking God, the one who has done us the great privilege of taking us seriously, of engaging with us, of communicating to us. And what you have, if you've sight of a text, I'll be asking you to turn to various passages in Proverbs. I'm very taken with the, the Bible that I found in the pew. I'm tempted to take it home. It's got nice, clear print, and it's large. And if you've got a copy of that, we're looking at page 551. Proverbs chapter 30 is the first reading we'll be coming to. But I want to acknowledge at the outset that what I've got to say to you is not my reflections after a lifetime of mismanaging money. I could talk to you about that. What we're going to do together is to see what God says through this writer on the subject of wealth and poverty. Before we get into it, let me just explain what Proverbs is and what it's not. It's part of what is called wisdom literature in the Bible. And what that means is this, along with a couple of other books, is given by God, not as a narrative, not as a promise box, not as a prospectus as to if you do this, that, this, and this, then you will be guaranteed a certain result. This is part of our generous creator's manual to us explaining how the world works and how we can live well in the world that he has made, that he sustains, that he upholds, and how we can live in a way that honors him, pleases him, and how we can relate well to each other. So it's a very practical book because he wants us to understand how life works and how we can live well. The Bible doesn't just tell us how to live well. It tells us that no matter how well we live, we don't live well enough. And the Bible, of course, goes on to tell us not only that we can live well, but when we mess up, and we all do, then God within this revelation has given us the answer. But that's another subject. So this is not a promise box. This is not a commercial prospectus. And tonight, we're not dealing with a comprehensive account. This is not everything that the Bible has to say about money and poverty. There is a lot that the Bible says about those topics. So the compass tonight is to see the contribution that this writer makes to that important subject. So let me try and explain where we're going. Next slide. 
There is recently published this book that David Bingham referenced for you last week, and I encourage you to get it if you haven't yet ordered it. I've got a copy here. The first person to come and ask me can have this one. I apologize it's got markings on it, but if you can ignore that, you can have it. This is a book by John Lennox, and it's entitled A Good Return, Biblical Principles for Work, Wealth, and Wisdom. And the reason I'm mentioning that is in recognition that what I've got to say in the time I've got is only a small part of much more that could be said and should be said. And of course, the Bible itself has much more to say than even John Lennox, with all his insight, wisdom, and skill can capture in a little book. But it's a very useful resource as we come to this. So what are we going to do tonight? So let's have the slide that tries to map out what we're going to be doing. As I read through Proverbs, I found that scattered through it, there were a number of references to wealth and to poverty. And what I'm trying to do is to pull together the themes. We'll not read all of the passages that touch on this subject, but what I want to do is to look at wealth and count it, look at what it is in Bible terms, and then to assess it, what God makes of wealth, and then a difficult subject of how to get it, and what happens when you lose it, and what happens when it's lacking. I remember, I see a number of young people, and I remember being a student in the university close to here, and in those days, the problem I had with money was there never was enough of it. I remember going to a bank manager who told me that as my, my earnings would increase, then my spending would increase. And I thought that he was out of touch with reality, but I discovered that I was the one who was out of touch with reality. So there's a problem with money, getting it, losing it, lacking it. And then I want to bring you a challenge about wealth and how to use it. So that's the plan, and if I get through that in the time I've got, then I'll be relieved, and you can be discharged to go to your other tasks. So let's come to God's Word and look, first of all, at wealth counting. it. What is it? Let's start with what the writer says in Proverbs 30, which if you're using this wonderful big church Bible, is page 551, page 551. Proverbs 30. I'm just giving you a chance to find it, and if you're not using that, then you can find it somewhere else. I'm going to call this the Goldilocks passage, verses 7 to 9 of Proverbs 30. Goldilocks because you know the story of Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, just right. Verse 7, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. And in that passage, which we'll come back to, there is a recognition that wealth comes from God and is inherently problematic. But before we start delving too much into money, let's just pause to recognize that wealth, wealth embraces things more than merely money. Time and time again throughout Proverbs, you find that character and integrity are things that are even more valuable than money. So if you go to chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 8, verses 10, chapter 8, verse 18, chapter 16, just by way of examples, you'll find that time and time again, it's described as wisdom is better than jewels or silver or gold, and character and integrity, a good name, is more to be desired than great riches, chapter 22, verse 1. So we've got to start by recognizing that wealth is not just money. It includes money, but it is more than money. The, the class, the concept of wealth in Bible is not confined to money, but it includes it. In fact, as John Lennox makes clear, that there are other forms of wealth that we must not underestimate. He highlights the, the intellectual wealth that God entrusts to some and how that can be used as a resource to the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom. He also stresses the, the relations that we have so that it matters who you have connections with so that you can be a resource in God's hands to reach out and bring people together, connect them with the great God of heaven and his plan for their life. So, if you start off by thinking, I have very little money, this address from Proverbs is going to have very little to say to me, you've started off on the wrong foot, and I mustn't let you start off on the wrong foot. Wealth includes money, but really it's a, a teaching we're going to see about resources that God gives to us, and God gives every one of his children resources. All God's children are gifted children. We've all got resources and abilities and talents that are part of the wealth that God has given to us that we might harness them and employ them to his glory and honor. So be careful not to have a narrow, shrunken view of wealth and the resource that God has given to you. You might never, ever make it to the times rich list. But when it comes to the assessment of your life, God is looking beyond what's in your bank balance. He's looking to the character that he wants to develop and build within you. And of course, we've got to recognize that wealth is something which, compared to most of the world, the people sitting in this room tonight are incredibly wealthy. I could take you to places where they don't have clean running water, where they don't have the basic necessities of life and shelter, where people are trying to raise children sleeping at the side of the road under tarpaulins. 
So we have got to recognize that sitting as we do tonight in this comfortable, beautiful building, we are already amongst some of the richest people on the planet. So wealth is more than money, but it includes it. So then let's move to assessing wealth, assessing it with a focus on money. First of all, we've got to recognize that money, wealth, is a divine resource. All good gifts come from God, including the ability to earn money. So if you go to Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, if you're making notes, there God had said to the people through Moses, if you have health and strength and the ability to go out and earn a living, where do you think that comes from? That is not your own inherent resource. The ability to earn money is a divine provision. It is the Lord your God, he says through Moses. He gives you power to get wealth. So those of us who have the health and strength to go to work, and not everyone does, and to earn money, we've got to recognize that even that ability to get up and to go out and to earn those funds is part of God's provision for us. It all starts with him. And you'll see again and again through this that God is seeking to drive home to us that everything we have of any value that is good is from him. In fact, the only thing I have that is truly my own is my sin. And he takes that away from me. Everything I've got, everything I've got is from God. Proverbs 10, verse 22. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And then the Goldilocks passage that we read together, Proverbs 30. You'll see that the giver of resources is God. Who else could it be? Where else does it come from but the source of life? the source of all that is good. So Proverbs is premised on the notion that wealth, resources, are good gifts that come from God. But it's also alive to the truth and the sad reality that money can become a distraction. It has a downside. Abuse abounds in our world that has fallen. Our world is driven by greed. It's fueled by pride. And the downside, the dark side of money is something which pops out again and again through Proverbs. Turn, if you have a text, to chapter 23, verse 4. And here is a warning to those who weary themselves to gain wealth. And the sage of Jerusalem says, don't do it. That excessive chasing after money don't weary yourself. Another downside of wealth is that it can attract the wrong sort of company. Look at chapter 14, verse 20. And there you find a realistic insight that those who are wealthy, those who have money, find that it attracts many friends, in inverted commas. Isn't that the feature of so many people who come on money quickly through celebrity, who make a lot of money through 
all sorts of the entertainment industry or sport or whatever, very quickly they are surrounded by newfound friends who act as advisors, hangers-on, and quickly become leeches. Look at chapter 19, verse 4. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. And there is an insightful observation that sometimes money is what draws us to others. We're attracted by those who have this power and this influence and this wealth. And the poor person is shunned. James chapter 2 warns about that in the church. The fuss that can be made of the, the wealthy person turning up at the front door. And we fawn over them. Whereas the poor person is despised and shown to the the uncomfortable pews, not the nice comfy seats that you're sitting on, but the, the hard chairs that I was sitting on. You're, you're, there's a discrimination. These are the poor seats. Those are the good seats that I discovered tonight. And the problem with wealth, the downside, is that those who have it can mistakenly imagine that it is a fortress that protects them. Look at chapter 10. Verses 15 and 16. There the sage tells us that wealthy people tend to see their wealth as a fortress. Checking the interest rates, checking the stock market, making sure that there's enough, making sure that I'm hedged against all sorts of adversity and changes and downsides and whatever's going to happen, my my comfort, my protection, the thing I'm counting for, my security is money. This becomes the mindset of those who have wealth. Look at chapter 18, verse 11. There the writer says that they regard wealth as a high wall in their own imagination. It's how they think, it's how they see the world, that they are protected and guarded against unwelcome events because they've got a lot of money. But then you get the reality breaking through in chapter 11, verse 4, that on the day of God's judgment, the day of his wrath, riches don't help you. Chapter 11, verse 28, those who trust in riches will fall. You can't take it with you. And when you face the eternal judgment before God, he's not impressed with your ranking on the times rich list. The critical question is, what did you make of the Lord Jesus? Who did you think he was? Did you recognize him as the very son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? and surrender your life to him and all the resources he gave to you, employ them to his glory. Did you do that? Made that wise use of the resources he employed, gave to you? Or falsely, foolishly, build for yourself a barrier of wealth that cannot stand against the judgment of God. So there is that downside where people take refuge in their money and imagine it is a hedge, a protection, when it can't be. 
And that brings us back to the Goldilocks passage, chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Instead of having too much and forgetting God, taking God out of the equation and trusting money instead of God, or instead of becoming so poor that we fall into immorality and theft, he says, give me just enough. God, you're in charge ultimately of the resources. I need a certain amount, but I don't want too much, nor do I want too little. Give me that Goldilocks amount. And that idea is picked up, isn't it, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19, that we'll look at later, where the Lord Jesus himself talks about this balance and the priorities and seeking, first of all, God's kingdom and trusting him to give us all the resources we need. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. The people who really profit are those who take whatever God has entrusted to them, are grateful, and pursue a relationship with the eternal God of glory, recognizing that what we do, how we live, how we interact with each other here is going to impact and affect the real world beyond. So, so much for the assessment of wealth. What about getting it, losing it, and lacking it? Well, here I can move through more quickly. How do you get it? Well, you can get it legitimately. Chapter 10, verse 4. The hand of the diligent makes rich. David Bingham was talking about this, the importance of work, and that if you are a faithful, conscientious worker, then you have a, a reasonable expectation that there's going to be a supply of resources. Diligence brings its reward. That's a legitimate way of getting it. In all labor there is profit, says chapter 14, verse 23. The other way that some people get money is through inheritance, and the sage recognizes that. So in chapter 19, verse 14, if you care to turn there, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. There are some people and they are born into families that are able to pass wealth down generations. And that is commended in Proverbs 13, 22, where the writer says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. So there is nothing wrong with seeking to be wise and responsible and providing for your children and even your grandchildren. And those are the two legitimate ways of gathering wealth through work, and through inheritance. But this writer is shrewd and insightful, as we've seen, and he recognizes that there are immoral ways to come by money. Wealth by way of fraud dwindles. Ill-gotten gains do not profit. You'll see that in verse 2 of chapter 10. One who uh, uses a lying tongue gathers wealth, but it's fleeting. Look at chapter 20, verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily will not be blessed in the end. In other words, it's maybe archaic language, but it's really a warning against get-rich-quick scheme. The idea that you can suddenly and spectacularly make a lot of money very quickly and very easily. 
very often such schemes are premised on some sort of immorality and abuse. And the writer of Proverbs nails it. So we've got to be careful how we get it to make sure that we get it morally because all our ways are before God. And however tempting it might be to come on wealth immorally, we must not do that. That's really basic ethics 101, isn't it? Not too difficult to see that. But having got it, however you got it, don't imagine you're going to necessarily keep it. Losing wealth is also one of the facts of life. It's a fleeting, ephemeral thing. Look at chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. Wealth makes itself wings, like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Look at chapter 27, verse 23. Riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. This is what they used to call the clogs to clogs in three generations phenomenon. During the Industrial Revolution in England, there were many skillful men who became wealthy through an invention or through some new business, and they rose from their clogs, their wooden shoes, to great wealth and prominence and success. Then what tended to happen in the second generation was that they gave their children education and all sorts of accomplishments, and they would work in the business, but they were more interested in enjoying life and the wealth that had been built up. Come the third generation, time and again, sociologists will tell you, historians will point out, by that stage, the third generation were not interested in work anymore. What they wanted to do was to live off the wealth, to spend the wealth, to become spectacular playboys and to waste it. And very often, they were back where the family had started three generations earlier, back in their clogs, broke, because they had blown it. And you'll see the same pattern again and again. So that historians tell me that, for example, the Rothschild family are very unusual in that a family over many, many generations has managed to hold on to wealth and to build wealth and to sustain it. And that's not something that is commonplace. It's the exception instead of the rule. Riches are not forever. They're ephemeral, even within families. But of course, the big point is that even if you've built up a lot of wealth for yourself, you'll find that when they measure you for a shroud, it has no pockets. You don't take it with you. Which takes us to those at the other end of the spectrum, those who lack it. And the writer is very clear and fair and just to recognize that those who have money are not necessarily the most deserving. Wealth is not a marker of good character. It's not an indication of virtue. Look at chapter 13, verse 23. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but is swept away by injustice. This sage recognizes that the world is broken, it's fallen. We are guilty before a moral God in that we have designed systems and practices that are corrupt. Injustice is commonplace around the world, and we are not immune to it. And uh, 
wealth is not fairly divided out. It's obvious. It's a fact. And God, through Proverbs, recognizes it. The rich can be haughty and difficult with the poor. So that turn to chapter 31, verse 9, and see what the writer says there. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, recognize that the poor and needy exist because there is abuse within our systems. And instead of being silent about that, that should concern us. It should call for a proper, balanced, godly response. Not complacency, not smugness, because it's not affecting me personally. But we're called upon to be alive to the rights of the poor and the needy and to speak up for them. And of course, evangelical Christians have been, throughout history, at the forefront of organizations and movements to promote fairness, justice, righteousness in public life, in systems, to prevent abuse, to curb it, to discipline those self-seeking, greedy motives that are present in every heart. And it's vital we recognize that money can never be the measure of a person who is created in the image of God. Let's never make the mistake of judging someone by how rich or poor they are. C.S. Lewis makes the point beautifully in one of his essays that you've never met an ordinary person. He says, if you could see what your neighbor, your fellow Christian will be like when they reach heaven in that glorified, magnificent body that they will be given, when they see the Lord Jesus and when we are consumed by the vision of God, if you could only see what we will be like then, you'd be tempted, he said, to fall down and worship. There are no ordinary people made in the image of God, made for relationship with God. Someone is not judged by God, by the extent of their wealth or lack of it. So let me move quickly to the last of the four points, using wealth well. And the principle here is very simple. We're to serve God, not wealth, and use wealth, not God. The temptation is that we serve money and use God. The proper formula is that we serve God and we use money. Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus spoke about the two masters, that you cannot serve God and money. So if your goal is to serve God, then that's the proper order. In Proverbs, coming back to that, look at chapter 11, verse 24, generosity is encouraged one who gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Generosity is a virtue. Money is round so that it can be shared and go around. And this stewardship principle of taking money and employing it well is something which I want to encourage you to come back to Lennox's book. He makes a lot of this, and rightly so. 
And the other book that I have that is free to the first person who comes to ask me for it is this recent biography of Sir John Lang, or as the family like to call it, Lang. And if you don't know the story of Sir John Lang, this story, this book will, will instruct you and amaze you. Let me summarize it in a few sentences. A hundred years ago, this man set up a, a trust out of the business. He was a member of a building family up in the northwest of England. And he made a pact with God that he would set money aside for God's kingdom, and he did. And in the years following that, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, his business became the biggest construction and civil engineering business in the United Kingdom. They built the M1. They built Coventry Cathedral. They built Golders Green housing in North London. They built power stations. They, you name it, chances are they built it and made huge, huge profits, which were all the time being diverted into a fund for gospel work, for Christian work. And he was investing this wisely and shrewdly as a visionary into all sorts of Christian activities, Bible colleges, missionary outreach. He was one of the early funders of Mission Aviation Fellowship, which is now a huge organization sending planes into remote areas so that missionaries can be supported. He supported all sorts of initiatives among students so that IFES and the student network all around the UK and beyond was initially given a kickstart and huge funding by this man out of these funds that he derived from his business. Eventually, he got to the point where he passed this responsibility on to others, and that's what the book's about. But I can tell you that today, there are many, many, many millions of people all around the world who are being blessed day by day through the generosity, through the discipleship, through the commitment, through the wise use of money that started with Sir John Lang. I can also tell you that he's not alone in doing that. There are people close to you here involved in similar organizations and similar investments for the kingdom. In fact, it's not just those with large resources. This is something which the Lord Jesus taught was something that all of his followers could do. To invest what you have here and now, not just for the immediate return, but for the eternal return. So let's round it up with the last slide. There it is. You realize that whatever resource you have has been given by God so that he would be glorified and honored. Not so that you'd have a nice time with it. And one day, each of us will have a personal interview with the Lord Jesus who will eyeball us and ask us, what did you do with those resources that I gave to you? The wealth, the intellectual talent, the musical gifts, the friendships, the connections. Whatever it is, is the special package that he's given just to you. What did you do with it? We've got to be grateful for what he has given us, whatever it is. And we've got to use it wisely 
accountably, recognizing that one day we will give an account. Let me finish with words from the Lord Jesus himself on this very topic, because the one who is ultimately behind these insights is God. And the Lord Jesus described himself as greater than Solomon, which isn't a very modest way to describe yourself unless you are the Son of God in flesh, and then you're entitled to say the truth, that you are greater than Solomon. If you turn in your church Bible to page 811, which is Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to finish by reading the words of the Lord Jesus. Because he's not just a sage, a wise man greater than Solomon. He is in the, the insight of Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, the embodiment of wisdom. Verse 19 of Matthew 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like thee, one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, pause, those are the people outside the kingdom of God. Those are the people who are not thinking God's way, living God's way. They seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, this is my Sunday night verse I tell myself very often, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God. Whatever resource he has given to you, make sure that you recognize it, harness it, employ it to his glory and honor so that one day when you give an account, you're able to say, thank you for what you gave to me. And with the Spirit's enabling and empowering, I sought to use the resources to your glory. 
And my prayer is that each of us will hear him say, well done. You were a servant that was good and faithful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have entrusted us with so much, resourced us so bountifully, generously, and we give you thanks for that. We thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of your Son, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who has come to indwell and enable and equip us. And our prayer, Father, as we go into a new week in your will, is that we take the resources you've entrusted and in the power of your Spirit, live to the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen. The books are here, whoever wants them. <laughs>